I'm going to invite you to pull out your Bible today, and you're going to want um, something to take notes with. Ushers are coming down the aisles now to hand out Bibles. Raise your hand if you don't own a Bible or you forgot your Bible. Um, if you have those Bibles in your car, go out after church and bring them back in here. We need them back. But uh, you're just going to want a Bible, all right? That's the message. Here's what I want to do as you're kind of getting settled. Um, I want to share an update and a prayer request about our ministry partnership in Myanmar. This week, in the coming week, about 50 pastors and leaders from all over Myanmar are coming to Pastor Nopum's church. Pastor Nopum is our friend and partner. So if you're new to our church, you may not have heard about Pastor Nopum, but we've been in partnership with him for many years now. And he has a vision to reach the whole country of Myanmar with the gospel. So he's invited 50 leaders from all over the country to come to a training. And our one and only pastor, Guy Gray, our founding pastor, is flying out there on Friday to teach and train and lead. And I'd love to ask for you to pray specifically for Guy. Guy is actually fresh off of a full shoulder replacement. So yeah, and it, it was a great successful surgery, but he's still in a sling today. And on Wednesday, he goes to convince his doctor to let him not wear that sling anymore. And we believe in miracles here at River West. Amen. So we're praying. So pray for him that he won't bump that against somebody or, and, and, and that God will bless him and his teaching and his leadership. And we just really believe in Nopum and everything that's happening in Myanmar. So please pray for them. And also just thank you for your prayers for our church. I, I want you to know like the, the emails that I get, the texts that I get, the, the words of affirmation that I get from you about how you're praying for our church. It's so significant. And so thank you. I'm going to start the sermon today a little bit different than I start the sermon. In, about, in just about a minute, I'm going to put a sentence on the screen and I'm going to put this sentence on the screen because you're not going to be able to understand the passage we're going to study this morning in Luke 13 until you deal with the claim of this sentence. And this sentence is going to function kind of like a headline for everything that we're going to talk about today in our study of Luke, in Luke 13. And here's the sentence. I want you to think about this with me. In the Gospel of Luke, a miracle is a special act of God that always points beyond itself to something else, something deeper, a deeper truth about the heart of God or about the meaning of the Gospel. That's what miracles are. That's what miracles do. Miracles always are pointing to something else, something deeper. So the purpose of a miracle is never the miracle itself. Miracles point our direction somewhere else, a deeper truth that we need to understand. And so I don't have to convince you that this morning what we're talking about is a super significant theme. We're going to talk about miracles today. And if you've been around Christianity at all, you know in Christian faith, miracles are kind of a big deal. They're sort of a part of our faith. They're really, I mean, the two biggest holidays in the Christian church, Christmas and Easter, are both celebrations of our greatest 
most amazing miracles, the incarnation of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. So we care a lot about miracles. We want to think deeply about miracles. And what we have in the Gospel of Luke, like a lot of the Gospel writers, Luke is giving us this extraordinary record of the miracles that Jesus performed. Have you noticed this in our study? Chapter after chapter after chapter, what do we see? Jesus doing astounding, unexplainable things. Walking on water. Taking five loaves and two fishes and multiplying them and feeding thousands. Healing people of blindness, leprosy, diseases. Raising people from the dead. Astounding. But these are astounding. However, they do pose a couple of problems or questions. So for example, a lot of people when they read the Gospels or, or around Christianity, they think, now, wait a minute, did this stuff actually really happen? I mean, come on, <laughs> right? Especially if you're raised in our culture and our, our secular society where we've been taught and trained to believe that nothing ever happens that's supernatural, only natural, secular explanations for what happened in our world. So the claims of Christianity, wait a minute, my friends, the claims of Christianity force a person to ask the question, what kind of world are we living in? Are we living in a world where nothing supernatural ever happens or are we living in a world where sometimes God breaks in and does something special? And I believe, and I recognize in a room this size, some of you, that's where you've been. You're a little, you're like, really? But here's another problem. A lot of people, I hear this all the time, pastor, why don't we see today the same kind of miracles that, that, they, that we saw in the, in the Bible, the apostles, Jesus. It just seems like there was like spectacular stuff going on then. And now I feel like I don't see the same kind of spectacular, miraculous stuff today. What's, what's up with that, right? And here's the thing. Even in the church, even in the American church, there's a lot of confusion about miracles. There just, there are. Here's what I've noticed. I've noticed actually two extremes when it comes to miracles. I want to put these up on the screen. I want you to think about this for just a minute. There's kind of two extremes. The first kind of extreme in the church in America is what I call unhelpful skepticism. <laughs> this is the, yeah, right, Christian, all right? I don't know if there's any of you out there. Yeah, right. You hear these claims or you hear current claims about the miraculous and you think, mm, really? Okay. I used to be kind of like that. I would hear big claims about miraculous stuff when I was younger and I was a little skeptical. I'm not like that anymore. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One of those reasons is I have friends in our church who should not be alive right now. Do you know anybody like that? <laughs> I have friends who should not be alive. They're literally walking miracles, okay? So there's an unhealthy skepticism that can happen, but there's another extreme in American Christianity. It's what I call unbiblical fixation on the miraculous. I want you to think about this. This is critical. There are movements out there in our, in. In, in America, in sects of Christianity, where there is this almost like an unbiblical fixation on the miraculous. 
to the point of almost worshiping the miraculous, idolizing it, even forcing it or fabricating the miraculous. And that's not helpful. I heard a story a couple years ago about a church that was claiming that gold dust was falling from the ceiling in the church. And then um, a couple years later, they caught a guy putting glitter from Hobby Lobby in the HVAC system, okay? It was Hobby Lobby, Hobby Lobby glitter that was falling, all right? So unhealthy fixation, fabrications of the miraculous. Well, that's not helping, but wait a minute. Here's the problem, okay, is that far too often in the church in America, we've not actually slowed down and asked the question, What's the purpose of miracles? Have you ever asked that question? Why did Jesus, thank you, yes, thank you, talk back to me. Have you ever, have you ever thought about it? Why did Jesus perform miracles? Let's just, assume, let's just assume for argument that he did, I believe he did. Why? What, what function did they serve? Did they have meaning? Was there a purpose? Okay, so, so in this room, some of you came in and you're skeptical. And you've lived with skepticism. And here's what I want you to know. This sermon today is for you. I'm glad you're here. Some of you have come in today and you're you're confused. And the reason you're confused is because you've been praying for healing or deliverance or something miraculous. And you even have a friend who's experienced a miracle, but it hasn't happened in your life. And it's created confusion for you. Maybe even pangs of doubt. And you haven't told anyone, but you're really struggling with that. Can I tell you something? This sermon's for you. Some of you have come in and you're hurting and you're broken because you were a part of a movement that that told you that the reason you have not been healed is because you didn't have enough faith or you have unconfessed sin or something else that's unbiblical and your heart is broken or a relationship is severed. Can I tell you something? This sermon's for you. And some of you have come in and you're just curious. You just want to grow. You want to learn. You want to be biblical. This sermon's for you. So it's kind of like the Fred Meyer sermon, one-stop shopping, all right? It doesn't matter where you are. This sermon is for you. Let's read Luke 13. Will you look at it with me? Luke 13, verses 10 to 17. Here's what happened next in the ministry of Jesus. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had 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 a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, will you just hover over that for just a second? Friends, I love this phrase. When Jesus saw her, can I tell you something? That's the greatest thing that could ever happen to anyone. Amen? That is the greatest thing. When Jesus sees you, something great is about to happen. And I believe it's going to happen today too, right here. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. Immediately, she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. 
When the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Amazing story, right? Here's the thing I want you to know. There's actually two ways you can read this story, okay? One way to read the story is that it's essentially a good guy versus bad guy story. Jesus is the good guy. He's come to bless people. He's come to take away hurt. He's come to make people uncomfortable. And there's the bad guy, the big, bad, evil synagogue ruler who's frumpy and religious and he doesn't want great things to happen in people's lives. You can tell by my tone of voice how I feel about this one way of reading the story, right? It's good guy, bad guy, okay? That's not what's happening here. There's another way to read this story. It's the biblical way to read this story. And it goes like this. Luke is doing what he always does. Luke is saying, I want to show you something about the true identity of Jesus. About the true meaning of the gospel. About the true nature of the kingdom of God. You've got to see this. And in this reading, which I believe is the right reading, the miracle that Jesus performs is the key. It's a window, okay? That's what miracles are. They point beyond themselves to something deeper, something more significant. The point is never to fixate on the miracle itself. The miracles always are pointing to something that we need to know about the heart of God or about the meaning of the gospel. Miracles are signs. Here's how John in his gospel, described miracles. I'll put this on the screen. John 20, at the end of his gospel, he said, now Jesus did many other signs. That word signs is our word miracle. And John says, he did all these signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Why? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. That's what miracles are. They're signs. They're pointing. And so the question is this. What does this miracle in Luke 13 point to? What does it tell us? What what are we supposed to see about Christ? Today, I'm going to tell you three things. I could tell you many. There's many more than three. But there are at least three things we're supposed to see in this miracle. I'm going to ask you to write these down. Take notes. You'll have to think about these a little bit. Here's... Number one, the miracle points to the gracious initiative of God. This miracle and also every miracle in Luke, it's always about God initiating, God breaking in because he's merciful, because he's compassionate. God looking on a broken, fallen world that's been twisted by sin and evil. And what does God do? He breaks in with gracious initiative. And those break-ins are miracles. Amazing. Amazing. But the key is, God is the one who initiates. Did you notice in the story, if you look at verse 12, 11 and 12 closely, 
The woman did not come to the synagogue that day seeking a cure. Did you notice that? She did not come to initiate a cure. She didn't come seeking Jesus. I bet she didn't even know Jesus was there that day. What does Luke tell us? He says, Jesus saw her. He saw her. He noticed her. Amazing. Go into the room with me. There's Jesus. He's teaching in the synagogue. It it would have been something like this. He's up front. Rabbis would sit when they would teach. That's a little different. So there he is. He's teaching. He's got a scroll. How did it happen? I'm not sure. But for some reason, he saw her. Maybe she walked in late. You know, she came in late. That never happens here. It only happened in the ancient world. But anyway, maybe she came in late and, and, and it was a distraction. And, and he noticed. He was trying to teach, but he saw her. She was, she was bent over, as Luke tells us. See, for Jesus, distractions were opportunities to talk about the gospel. Just a little insight into the, into the world of a pastor. When we're up here preaching... We have to tell ourselves, preach through the distractions because sometimes distracting things happen in a room this size, you know, and we like preach through it. One time I was preaching some time ago, not in this church, but anyway, I was preaching and there was a guy and I could see him out of my peripheral vision and he kept falling asleep. (laughs) And it was that thing, you know that? And it was really distracting and it was hurting my feelings. I'll be honest with you. I was like, I'm trying not to take this personally, but he's falling asleep in my sermon. And, but then, and so at first I felt bad for him. And then I started to worry for his health because it got super violent and his head would fly down. I thought he's going to break his neck. I'm going to have to pray for a healing in this worship service, right? But for Jesus, distractions were opportunities to put on display the gracious initiative of God. He saw her and he knew God wants to intervene. God wants to do something. Why? Because God's heart is compassionate. But think about this for a minute with me. This is so critical. Why did she come to church then? Why did she come to the synagogue? She didn't come knowing Jesus was there. So why did she come? Oh, wait a minute. Think about this, my friends. She came to synagogue to worship God. And not only that, the text indicates she had been coming for 18 years. So what that tells me is this this illness, this debilitation, this suffering was not in her mind an excuse to give up on God. It didn't ruin her spirituality. It wasn't a justification to accuse God of not being good. It never prevented her from being a worshiper. You know what? She showed up that day and she got healed and she glorified God. Do you know what would have happened if she hadn't been healed that Sabbath day? She would have come the very next week to worship God. Amazing. Amazing. And you know what it's a reminder to me? God is the one who decides when it's time to do something miraculous. Friends, hear me. God is the one initiating. God is sovereign. He decides when a miracle happens. This is so critical, okay? I need to press you on this because... 
there are sects of, of, of Christianity out there where they make really audacious claims about the miraculous. They step into sort of that space that I call the providence of God and they, they demand things from God or they try to force God's hand and it's harmful and, and hurtful. But this passage is a reminder, God is sovereign. He decides when, he decides where. I, re- I read a story this week about Charles Spurgeon was preaching this text, preaching on the woman with, who was bent over and he preached the whole sermon. And when he finished the sermon, he was standing up front like pe- preachers will often do and people were coming up to talk to him. And, he, and as he looked, a woman from his church was walking up and she had this condition. She was bent over. And you know what happened to him? He freaked out because <laughs> he was like, oh, what? she's coming forward expecting it a healing, a miracle. She's heard this sermon and she was walking up and I love what Spurgeon wrote. He said, in that moment, I knew two things at the same time. I knew God has the power to heal this woman. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And I'm gonna pray for that. But he knew a second thing. He said, I also know this woman, she's been a faithful, godly member of my church. And, and even if God decides not to heal this temporary physical ailment, you know what? She'll be back next Sunday to worship and glorify God. Amen. This is a, this is a life-giving truth. God is sovereign. God initiates. That's number one. Number two, number one, the miracle points to the gracious initiative of God. Number two, the miracle points to the true identity of Jesus. The true identity of Jesus. That's what the miracles do. Remember, the miracles are never about the miracle. They are pointing, they're windows. What is this miracle showing us? Who Jesus really is, that he's God's king, that he's God's Messiah, that he has the right and the authority to bring God's kingdom, that he's actually here to take back territory from Satan This miracle points to that. And all the miracles in Luke point to that. All the miracles in the gospel point to that. You say, pastor, how do you know that? How do you know that's true? The reason I know it's true is because Jesus said this himself. Did you know that? He said this. Do you remember in Luke when John the Baptist, chapter seven, you can go read this later. John the Baptist sent some of his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? The story is that John was in prison and he had heard Jesus preach a sermon where Jesus stood up, read from Psalm 61 and said, I've come to preach good news to the poor. I've come to deliver people from captive, captivity. I've come to release people from bondage. And here's John the Baptist and he's in jail. And he's like, Jesus said he's come to release people from bondage. Hello, Jesus, here I am. I'm in jail. Wait a minute, are you actually, because I'm still in prison. So are you actually the Messiah? So John sends these two disciples and they go and they ask Jesus this question. And I love the way Luke describes it. I'll put these on the screen. It says in Luke 7, 21, in that very hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And then he answered them. That is the two, the two men from John the Baptist. He said, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. 
The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Jesus said, why am I doing all this? To prove to you my true identity. I'm God's king, I'm God's Christ, I'm God's Messiah, and you know why I've come? I've come to bring the kingdom. And that means I've come to take back territory that's been under the control of spiritual evil. Did you notice that in Luke, so many of the miracles involve spiritual evil? It's really fascinating. So now you understand. Wait a minute, why are all the miracles always this cosmic confrontation, Jesus versus Satan? And the answer is this. When the true king shows up, there's bound to be a little bit of conflict with the guy who's temporarily been in control, (laughs) right? Jesus comes into the world that he created, the rightful king. Who's been running the show? Satan's been running the show. And now, folks, we have a, a battle going on. And the miracles point to this, even this miracle. Isn't it interesting? Did you notice how Luke describes the woman? We look very closely at verse 11. Carrie, I think a light got turned off back there. Could you, maybe a light in the middle of the sanctuary got turned off. Um, So verse 11, look at how, look at how Luke describes this woman. Okay, she's bent over, yes. She couldn't straighten up, do you see that? Yes. And what does Luke attribute this to? A disabling spirit, isn't that interesting? For 18 years, people had looked at this woman and all they saw was this ailment. She's bent over. But Jesus really sees her. He sees her and he knows, wait a minute, this is more than just a physical thing. There's something spiritual going on here. A disabling spirit. Now, okay, listen, this, is, this does not mean that every physical ailment is the result of something spiritual. Luke himself, well, he was a doctor for one thing, and there are many times where he just describes things as sickness, illness. Okay, so it would be unwise to think that everything that's physical has a spiritual source. But, but wait a minute, it would also be unwise to think that everything that's physical never has a spiritual source. And sometimes there's more going on underneath the surface than we realize. And this is why I'm so thankful that Jesus is sovereign, that Jesus is all wise. He saw her for 18 years. She had come to synagogue and no one saw this. And then she showed up on this day and Jesus finally saw her. He said that she is in bondage. There is something spiritual going on. Why have I come? I'm God's, I'm the king. I'm the rightful ruler. I've come to take back territory. I've come to say to Satan, you no longer have a right to hold people in bondage. And the miracle points to that. Such good news. You know, friends, there's nothing wise about in our world, living in our world and, 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 and ignoring what's happening spiritually. Jesus saw 
the spiritual realm. And I'm so thankful for that because he's sovereign Lord. He's sovereign Lord of our, of our community, our world, our church. Amen. And he's the king, okay? And the miracle points to that. Number three, please write this down. Number one is the miracle points to the gracious initiative of God. Number two, the miracle points to the true identity of Jesus. And then this is so critical. The miracle points to the true nature of redemption. And here's what I'm after. Every miracle, including this miracle, it's trying to show us something about what it means to be saved. What happens spiritually when a person gets saved? And what I, I want to suggest to you is that all of the miracles are showing us some aspect of salvation because salvation is so multifaceted, it requires a lot of miracles. Did you know, have you ever thought about this? The miracles that Jesus performed were not random. They weren't just these random magic tricks, okay? Jesus didn't walk around pulling rabbits out of a hat. He wasn't trying to mesmerize people. He wasn't going, hey, look at that tree over there. I'm going to set it on fire. Hey, I'm going to make Peter levitate. He wasn't doing weird, random things. Every miracle that Jesus performed was intentional. And every miracle was a window into some aspect of salvation. So Jesus would heal a blind person. And then he would say, did you know that salvation is about having the spiritual eyes of your, of your heart healed so you can see the true glory of Jesus? Isn't that amazing? And the miracle of the blind man is a window into, that's what salvation is. I, I'm allowed to see the glory of Christ spiritually. Jesus would take bread and he would multiply it. He would feed thousands. And then he would turn right around and say, wait a minute, did you know that I'm the bread of life? I'm the bread that came down from heaven. You could eat a full meal for the rest of your life, but if you do not feed on me, you can never have eternal life. Amazing. Jesus would raise people from the dead and then he would turn around immediately and he would say, I am the resurrection and the life. Even if a person dies physically, if they believe in me, yet shall they live. Isn't that astounding? Miracle after miracle after miracle. And this miracle too. It's not random. It's not weird. It's not an accident. Jesus chose it. It's a teachable moment. He saw a woman come into his, to the synagogue and he said, I've got an opportunity to teach something about the nature of redemption What was it? What do we have? It's a woman with a disabling spirit, a woman who's been in bondage for 18 years. She's lived her life bent over by this bondage. I thought about this this week. Think about it. I bet there were days where she would wake up and forget that she had this condition and she, she would wake up and she would try to stand up straight, and, she would, and then she would go, oh, I can't do it. So even when she wanted to stand up, she couldn't do it. She was somehow held down. And then you realize this is 
it's a metaphor. It's a picture. It's a reminder. Salvation is about getting released from spiritual bondage. That's what salvation means. Jesus frees you from being trapped spiritually. Like having spiritual shackles fall. That's why when he, when he, when he healed her, he said, woman, you're freed from your disability. I'm freeing you. And, and then in verse 8, 17, when he described what had happened, he said, how, how could we allow a, a daughter of Abraham whom Satan has bound to not be loosed? All of this language, being freed, loosed, people who are bound. My friends, it's a reminder that Salvation is about getting freed from bondage and sin is about being in shackles. Can I tell you something? Satan, who's real, do you know what his mission is? His mission is to hold people in bondage. That's what he's here to do. He's here to enslave people. It's amazing what Jesus does. Look at verses 15 and 16 for just a moment. I want to point out a, a Greek word. It's, uh, it's unfortunate. The ESV, I feel like they, they didn't do this right. There's a word in verse 15 and then 16. It's the same word, and it's the word that he uses to describe untying someone who's in bondage. So Jesus said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And then verse 16, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be untied from this bond on the Sabbath day? It's not the word loose. It's the exact same Greek word. And here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, this woman is a lot like an animal that is tied down. It's what we call a beast of burden, a, a, a work animal that's in, it's in chains, it's tied down. It can never go get water on its own. And if you think about it, beasts of burden, oxen, cow, they live their lives looking at the dust. Can you imagine living your entire life with your head down looking at the dust? But wait a minute, that woman came into the synagogue that day and said, I don't need to imagine that. That's my life. And Jesus says, I've come to untie you because you're, you're not a beast. Sin has turned people into beasts of burden. Satan wants to hold people down. Jesus says, I've come to free people from this very thing. Amazing. You say, well, yeah, but this was physical. But see, we all know that what, this is a metaphor for something that happens spiritually. My friends, I don't have to convince you that there are so many people who are in bondage to spiritual things, held down to addiction, to sin, to some kind of brokenness. Maybe, maybe even you, as you came in, you're hearing this and you're saying, Pastor, you are describing my life right now. I am in bondage. I feel trapped. I'm in shackles. Even if I wanted to straighten up, I feel like I couldn't do it. Can I tell you something, my friends? Jesus sees you. He sees you. You're not here by accident. He sees you. And not only that, he has the power to free you this very day from your bondage. 
So you say, pastor, I feel like I don't see miracles anymore like the miracles we saw in the New Testament. Do you know what I say to that now? You know what I say to that? I say, that's interesting because I see miracles every single Sunday when I stand in the pulpit. (laughs) And I just look out and I realize miracle, 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 miracle. Should I keep going? This will take some time. Wait a minute. Hold on. Maybe we need to expand our understanding of what a miracle is. What is the greatest miracle that could ever happen to a person? It's for Jesus to untie the shackles of their heart, to cause the spiritual blindness to fall so they can see Christ. If you love Jesus, if you're following Jesus, you are already the recipient of the most powerful miracle that God could ever accomplish. Amen. Amen. Okay. So I say to you, does Jesus want to heal people from blindness? Sure. Does it happen? Absolutely. But wait a minute. What if a person's healed from physical blindness, but they never have the eyes of their heart open to the reality of Jesus? Does the healing matter? No. What if a person is cured from disease, but they never experience the cure of the disease of the sin in their heart, does it matter, the healing? No, it doesn't matter. The true miracle that every miracle is pointing to is the miracle in the human heart. Amazing. So when you're inclined to think, I don't feel like I see miracles anymore, just go stand in a mirror, okay? And look at yourself there in Christ. Amen. I'm going to show you one last thing and then we're going to pray. Look back at your Bible at verses 18 to 20. This is the first time that I've actually understood the purpose of these two little parables that Jesus teaches. I've read this many times. And for the first time, I understood why he teaches now two little parables about the kingdom. Here's what he says. He said, therefore, and that word therefore is an important word. When you see the word therefore, ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore, all right? And what it is, the therefore is saying, it's pointing back. He's saying, now Jesus is going to comment on what just happened. And what does he say? Jesus says, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And you know that mustard seed, it's like the tiniest little seed. You can barely see it if you set it in the middle of your hand. And he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in some measures of flour. And we learned recently, leaven is just a tiny little bit of fermented dough and they would put it in a fresh batch and then it would, and they would knead it and it would spread through the whole loaf and cause it to rise. Tiny, imperceptible. And Jesus said, that's what the kingdom of God is like. It's like leaven and it spreads until the entire loaf is leavened. What's the point? Here's the point. Here's the point. We don't need the spectacular to prove to us that God's kingdom is spreading. Okay, I want you to think about this. We do not have to have spectacular pop and fizzle and amazing displays. You don't need that. In fact, the kingdom of God is not about that. 
The kingdom of God is not about spectacular. It's not about displays of amazing power. The kingdom of God is humble. The kingdom of God is, it starts out small. The kingdom of God spreads almost imperceptibly. It takes eyes of faith to see that Jesus is on the move. Jesus said, that's what the kingdom of God is like. Why? Because I'm the king. I didn't demand a throne. I didn't demand power. I went to a cross to hang for human sin. And I was raised again on the third day. And you can trust me. The kingdom is in your midst. The kingdom is in your midst. Can I ask you a question? When you came in this morning, are you in bondage? I, I need to ask this question. Are you in bondage right now to something? Spiritually. Are you stuck? Are you caught? Are you in chains? Are you in despair? Are you discouraged? Have you ruined relationships that you care about? Did you know something? Jesus sees you today. You're not here by accident. Maybe you think you're here by accident, but you're not here by accident. God has called you here. He's initiating. And I want you to believe today, trust. God, will you free me today? And I'm going to pray about that right now. Will you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, how we need your word, Father. It's, it's so true. It's so deep. It's so wise. We thank you, Lord, for Christ. We thank you for what we're learning about Jesus. We thank you for what we've learned today about miracles, Lord. God, would you help us to navigate this theme with wisdom? We don't want to be skeptics. We believe that you do miraculous things every day. People are healed. Astounding things happen, Lord. But we also believe we don't have to be fixated. And so in wisdom, show us, Lord, how to, how to walk right down the middle, we pray. Even now, Lord, as we go to the table and celebrate the greatest miracle of all, the miracle of the gospel, the miracle of the death and resurrection of our Savior, we thank you for it, Jesus. And we pray these things together in your perfect name. Everyone said, amen.